This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danielov. We spoke to Mark Howard, the engineer on Time Out of Mind, a few episodes back when he told us about recording the album in Oxnard, California and Miami, Florida, and about the techniques he used to get the album's famous sound and much more. Mark has just released his second book, a collection of photography taken in the studio with Dylan, as well as with dozens of other artists that he's worked with over the years. It's called Recording Icons slash Creative Spaces the creative world of Mark Howard. Mark rarely works in actual recording studios like the Criteria Studios in Miami, where they made time out of mind. More typical for him is what happened when he and Daniel Lenoir did Oh Mercy. They rented a house for a few months and turned it into a recording studio. Mark has worked all over the world that way, in all kinds of cool places and with an amazing roster of recording artists. And he brings a camera and takes pictures while he works. He's done so for over 30 years, and almost none of these shots of the most famous people in the world making some of our favorite albums have ever been seen. But now they're in his new book. Fiona Apple, Iggy Pop, Neil Young, Dave Grohl, Emmylou Harris, Sheryl Crow, the Neville Brothers, Willie Nelson, Joni Mitchell, and Bob Dylan are just some of the artists he's worked with and photographed. I talked to Mark about his book his unique photographic process, and some of the great people he's worked with. In a moment, you'll hear that interview. The book itself is now available on Amazon. You can find a link in the show notes. We have a copy to give away, and we'll be doing a drawing to choose the winner on Friday, November 18th. There's a link to enter to win that book in the show notes. If you're hearing this, you're not yet a Freak Music Club premium member. We share extended versions of these podcasts and video versions with our premium members. This episode is a particularly good extended episode because Mark and I drifted off to talk about Dylan some more, and he shared some cool additional stories about the making of Time Out of Mind. And the video for this episode includes many of the photos mentioned, which obviously gives you a great taste for the book. Becoming a Plus or Premium member is now on sale. It starts at just $5 a month. We run no ads in these podcasts, so membership helps us fund the effort, and you'll get a lot of extra content and benefits. There's a link in the show notes if you'd like to upgrade. But for now, here's our second talk with Mark Howard. Mark, hello. Welcome. Great to talk to you again. Yep. Nice to talk to you too again. That's great. Yeah. I'm excited that the book we talked about months ago is finally, uh, I think it's out in about two weeks from the day we're talking, probably very close to when, when this airs. Um, yep. a book you've, you've had in the works. What's the oldest photo in the book? How this book, you've been taking these photos for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, I guess the oldest one would be, uh, probably, um, the Neville brothers, uh, yellow moon record. That's kind of like where it all started. Uh, and so the, the, the books, uh, got some really great shots from those sessions, uh, in new Orleans and, uh, so I would say that's that was the the beginning of of my kind of voyage really, and then just after that it was like we moved into uh, Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy record, and then after that was 
Daniel M was solo record and then and it just kept going and for 30 years it didn't stop so and I was uh um I was hired by Daniel Lenoir to just do a six month period recording with uh helping him record the Neville brothers and so it just it just uh never stopped and uh, I never went back to Canada and I ended up uh, living in America for 30 years and tell me a little bit of how you shot it. It looks like in the book, some are, um, you know, sort of regular yeah. photos. There's a mix of styles in there. The thing I liked the best was these kind of fly on the wall photos where you're, yeah. you're, you're really getting a sense of what it's like. there, not something staged or, or, you know, all publicity oriented. Um, right. you just people hanging out, working, you know, concentrating on what they're doing, but natural. Exactly. Um, so I kind of developed this uh, technique uh, with my Nikon uh, camera and I would do time-lapse photography. So I would just put my camera on top of a speaker or on top of the console and it would capture a picture every 30 seconds. And, and so I would have like the whole day kind of like mapped out and I would do, I was started at doing it because of um, I was documenting kind of like when you go back and you think what guitar was that, that I used on that song and, and what microphones were we using? So it was kind of a more of a technical um, oh. journalism in the beginning. <laughs> and then it kind of like, I thought, wow, these photos look really cool. And so I started kind of, you know, gathering them up and, and then I started to uh, take shots of the locations and like, uh, you know, the, the, the whole house and, around it and the environment around it and so when i was in hawaii i would be taking pictures of all different kinds of places around it and then so it gives you a vibe of of where the location was so so uh, it kind of started that way as a documenting of gear type of thing and then you know people were getting captured in in these photos and and you know doing their guitar overdubs or or singing and you know like aaron neville sitting sitting there on the chair you know, singing right into a, like a, a, a buyer 88 was that he did all his vocals in. So, yeah. So months down the line, you, you want to fix something and you, you can't remember what, what exact guitar was that? Cause you, you know, you go through many different guitars and you go through different mics. So, yeah. So it was more documenting uh, that. And then it turned into kind of me really getting into it and documenting the environment and uh, you know, and then concentrating on the artist. And so I got great shots of just me and Robert Plant, just, you know, him sing, working on his songs and me kind of like kind of getting ready to record them and stuff like that. So uh, so they became um, kind of like capturing people in their natural habitat. You know, it's like it's like a nat- National Geographic catching animals in their, you know, the, uh, <laughs> wilderness. So, yeah, so, but, you know, when you hold a camera up to somebody's face and you take a photo, they, they, uh, they change their facial expression changes or they get shy of whatever. Uh, Bob Dylan, it's said no photos in the studio. He said, that's, you're stopping time. I don't want that. And so <laughs> I've snuck some, uh, some Polaroids out, uh, the documenting Polaroids that just happened to have some photos of him working on his lyrics and stuff like that. So it was pretty cool given that you have these you know inside the action 
photos now in the age of box sets and reissues has has anyone come to you have they been used anywhere else before your book because it seems like you there's so many famous albums you have shots of the the formation of uh i would think the box set people would be all over you to use these pictures somewhere else yeah well um there was um uh this dylan thing uh, that you were working on there was a bunch yeah, the- of photos that came from uh, I didn't take those shots, but they were documented by Bob Lanois in the studio of Dylan uh, when we were in Miami. And so those ones kind of resurfaced uh, at this uh, exhibit, right? Uh, the Dylan one in, where was oh, it? Oh, the, the in Tulsa. Yeah. In Tulsa, yeah. So they surfaced there. Uh, but nobody has else has kind of uh, um, contacted me about, you know, I've kind of like secretly been holding a lot of these things. And so uh, I've used them in my own book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Let me, let me ask you about the, your role a little bit, the engineering role at, at these recording sessions. You know, it's, it's not something a lot of people know, know a lot about. So you, you tend to be there with, and you've been a producer and engineer and a musician. So you've been in all, all the roles in this, but yeah. in most of these where you were, I think, I think primarily you've been the engineer. How many other folks are, besides the band, the artists tend to be involved or in the studio? Is it, is it sort of you and the producer and the band, or is there well, more people involved? I, I've, uh, I've always kind of like worked kind of by myself in, a, in the fashion that I don't have assistance or anything like that. But um, I've always been given uh, creative freedom uh, to how I want to record these sessions and what I, what equipment I want to use and stuff like that. So I've never been ever told like, uh, I want you to do this or that. I've always had like a, um, a, a creative freedom of, of doing how I do it. And, you know, and, that, and a lot of that is accidental. A lot of times, you know, by, you know, you get drum sounds, but then suddenly you find out that the vocal mic has a better drum sound than the, all these microphones all put together. And so you end up just using the leakage out of a vocal mic that's just sitting in a corner of the side of the room or something like that. So a lot of accidents happen like that in, in discovery because usually an engineer is told what to do by a producer. I want you to use this microphone on here and I want you to do that there. And uh, you're more directed and, and you're more of um, it's a laborer or kind of. Uh, just kind a of technician, thing. yeah technician you're just a technician and that's all you're asked to do where me it's it's more uh musical and it's more um you know my opinion is is always heard you know it's like bob me and bob dylan would be sitting at the console and uh, we'd do three takes and he'd, he'd ask me first he goes what take do you think it is and i'd say i think it's take two it feels best and he goes wow how do you know that and like i said i just it just feels best for me and and so it wasn't the producer that he was asking. It was like, right. you know, me who, who he trusted uh, in my opinion. So that that's uh, that's the way it's always worked for me. And that's kind of like how I got into, you know, producing records and people, you know, it, it's a lot to do with trust mostly. And once you have the trust of the artist, then you have the freedom to kind of do anything you want in a way of, you know, uh, um, techniques and stuff like that. And the you know the one great thing about the book is it shows off all these locations, and I don't know if they're they're exotic, but they're kind of unusual at least for recording in these beautiful houses and in many different 
uh, places. Um, I know you've, I know that was, you know, from, I read your book as well, which I'll, we'll put the link in the notes for people to go find your, your book called listen up, but, um, that you, you identified these houses or these locations to go record and you set it up and have people come in. Um, and then you, you know, I know, and I think in the old mercy, uh, story, you went down and you uh, went and bought guitars <laughs> Even even procuring instruments for 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 the band members, it's kind of it, it's surprising to me as someone not involved that you know that's you know that they wouldn't want to bring their own or they'd be open to hey I've got this drum set or I got these set of guitars or yeah um, well it, it, it's I wore many hats in the early days and it's not like I would find the locations to make these records and then I would find the instruments that we're looking for to to make these records and um, yeah I was like. I would handle all the bills and everything. It was like, uh, <laughs> like uh, only a, a one man kind of crew. So, um, I was uh, able to kind of like, you know, because, uh, I had hands in every pocket. I, you know, I kind of controlled the, the whole, how it all kind of came together and it, it got, you know, crazier and crazier as, as time went on because, you know, we were, we were me and Daniel Amois were moving around and, we moved to Mexico for a while and I had to kind of figure out how to get all the gear into Mexico and all that stuff. And so I became an importer out exporter and uh, hiring trucks and bringing them down all the gear and, and then getting it out of there before our six months were out up. And, you know, so it, it, it became uh, a lot more than just an engineer. I was kind of like, you know, doing many different jobs uh, at the time. And we, we ended up, uh, after the Bob Dylan record in New Orleans, we ended up, uh, Daniel ended up purchasing uh, this uh, place called Kingsway. Well, we named it Kingsway. He did. Um, but the, um, we stayed there for maybe five years, and then we, we carried on on the voyage, and we, that's when we went to Mexico and, and then uh, ended up at the Teatro Cinema in Oxnard, California, which was like a 19... 19- 40s Mexican porno cinema that I converted into a studio and so I would go into these locations and and convert them to kind of like um, uh, a workable playground so the teatro everything was uh, there was pianos and organs and so wherever you would walk in the room it was kind of like you sit down play the piano and I could just record you right away there was no setup and so that was great for Bob Dylan he had an idea, he'd go to the piano, play it over there, and then he'd go play on the organ. And, and so he would, uh, it's a kind of musical playground that I kind of created for the teatro. And, uh, and so I always kind of have that when the band or the artist walks in the room, I want to be able to record right away and don't want them to like wait around, uh, you know, for setups and stuff like that. And because I kind of started in a live world i'm very fast at getting setups done and so i treat every session like they're walking on stage and bang you know you're they're playing and i'm recording it and so a lot of those recordings uh first take second take they don't even know they're recording and those are the ones that usually are the best so uh you know because suddenly when the record light goes on a lot of people get nervous and you know it's like you don't get those great performances that uh so there's a lot of trickery going on sometimes. Yeah, and, and a lot of those locations are are homes. You know, there's mansions. There's these Malibu houses in, in your photo. There's some things down in Mexico. Um, yeah. In terms of sound, I guess you know someone would think that um, 
you know, a sound studio that's engineered and optimized and is made for recording sound would be an easier place to record. What is the impact of those unique environments on the results that you get or on, or on the techniques you have to use to get those results, I guess? Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of those locations, um, the sound of those locations are the sounds of those records, you know, because like if you work in a normal controlled environment, like in a normal recording studio and the guys in a glass booth, you're only limited to those type of sounds where, you know, if you're in a house and it's got an interesting bathroom or there's a great kitchen, um, you can, you know, put drums anywhere and have them, you know, exciting sounding in, in a tiled room or, but you don't get that in a studio. The, the studios have been kind of all deadened and, you know, just for, you know, so that they can control it. And so my gorilla approach to recording makes it a little bit more interesting and, and like I said, you know, found sounds that happen and uh, happen in those type of environments, you know. So I think by moving around and you're never in the same environment, you're going to be creating new sounds that uh, you haven't created before. So and, uh, you know, like, oh, we're limited. We don't have any percussion instruments. So I'll find a box and put rocks in it. And then and that becomes like the sound of. Of, of that one song's shaker or whatever. And, and same with guitars, you know, uh, to play a guitar in a nice big open room with high ceilings uh, with just one mic on it. It's just, it, you capture this, the, the air around the guitar and that where if you're in a normal studio, it's very dead and you got to use many microphones to capture a vibe of, of a room and stuff like that. So, yeah, so uh, uh, being able to, being new environments is very creative and um, it makes for a, a more interesting record. And uh, I think that's a, a, a cooler way to make records than, than just kind of standard kind of uh, doing the thing every time you, everybody, you put your drums in the same spot in the studio, but, but this way you kind of got new, new ways to record everything. It's pretty good. Um, and do the, how do the musicians react to that? Meaning, does it impact their expectation of the sound? I know in your book you talk, for example, about getting some guitar sound that Neil Young, you know, really really loved. Is that the equipment you're using? Is that this these unique locations? Um, it's got a yeah, it's yeah, it's got a lot you know to do with the location. We were recording in this house in the Silver Lake in Los Angeles, and I had this my um, gear set up in the hall of this kind of house that had like a huge spiral staircase that went up and and because of that i had um some subwoofers uh and so i was treating neil's guitar with uh uh the sub box that i had where i was putting low frequencies in his guitar so when he every time he hit that low note it was like it would just shake the his, the house and just like his could feel his pant legs move and so he never had that feeling before because you know maybe live you would get a feel of it but when you're standing in front of it he so he was just excited about the sound and it made him play a certain way because he was reacting off the sound he was listening to and so I don't usually use headphones in the studio I just use all the playback uh, or the uh, speakers I kind of kind of designs um uh, the the speaker system 
wherever I am. If I'm in a small room, I usually won't use a sub, but if I'm in a big room, I'll kind of have some big 18 inch subs. Uh, and it just, it just sound pressure makes you play differently uh, than you would uh, in a room with headphones on with your amp in another room. Uh, so you're, you're working off of the sound pressure. And I did a bunch of overdubs with Edge from U2 at the Teatro and I had a PA in there. And so I pumped the track through this PA. And so it was like live and had his guitar really loud. And so he just kind of was like, you know, in heaven, just being able to play that way. You know, it's, it's a, it's a luxury to, to have that uh, available to the artist, you know? So the, the Teatro we talked about last time was where you, you, where you started with Dylan, where he started coming down for the house of blues mix and then, and then, and then spent time. Um, you have that one picture in the book of the Teatro with there's a guitar on every seat in the, you know, in the, (laughs) what was that one? Did you set that up for the photo or is that just how someone uh, stored their guitars for a while? Yeah. So that was, uh, um, I took out all the middle seats of the, of the theater and I built a deck. So it was like a big, huge kind of like stage right in the middle of the theater. And I left all, all those, uh, theater chairs at the back of the theater. And so we ended up, uh, they were guitar stands. So it was like, we'd have the whole collection of guitars all ready to go. And you just walk over and pick, you know, oh, I want to, you know, 57 gold top, uh, Les Paul, or I want a butterscotch, uh, you know, telly or, you know, it's like we had the best instruments all available for whoever walked in the door. So it was, um, yeah, so it was kind of like the, the the collection was on uh, always out and uh, you could just always pick up whatever you wanted. So it worked out as really cool guitar stands. Yeah. Uh, I'll mention some of the other photos. You have Neville Brothers photo. It looks like it's in a car or something where the, the group is all yeah. four, four or five guys in the back seat. That's right. Yeah. Um, the, I didn't take that shot. That was shot by Christine Alicino from San Francisco. And she just oh, okay. down and and uh, she got the guys all all in a car and and took that sh- picture and she she took some of those other ones uh, in the studio too that were kind of more posed looking. There's a little bit of a mixture of of photos in my book that uh, Danny Clinch has got a couple of shots in there and a couple of other contributing photographers that l- let me use their photos. Karen Kewen was the photographer that did the. Uh, the beautiful shots of uh, Kingsway, the New Orleans studio that was kind of more Bordeaux kind of uh, pictures. They're like timeless, you know, black and white. Yeah, there's some beautiful Joni Mitchell f- photos in there. Uh, yeah. Some some of these of these maybe. So that yeah, hurts. On top of the speaker, and so there's a whole maybe thirty of them of her just smoking cigarettes, and I had Brian <laughs> Blade in there playing drums on some tracks of hers and. And so, yeah, so it's, it's there's a, a couple of cool ones that I, I picked out of all of those. And there's one that's kind of a ghosty shot where two pictures uh, were taken uh, and then one overlap. So her head is, she's smoking a cigarette, but then she's also smoking a cigarette over here. So it's this kind of ghosty head on her. It's pretty, pretty cool. So, yeah, so, you, and you, you wouldn't get that normally if you were just being a photographer, you know, it's like time-lapse uh, photos are that way where you capture it and you move because because the the lens stays open for uh, for a certain amount of time because it was dark and so those kind of 
was long exposures. And so when you move, you get like that trail. So uh, um, I, I love that kind of stuff. So it happens accidentally, but you make, you get great shots that would never normally be like that. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. So uh, Ricky Lee Jones, another set of great pictures in the book, anything you remember about that recording or, or taking those photos? Uh, yeah, they were also my camera just sitting there on the table and, uh, and she was playing her guitar. And then, uh, I'm not sure is there, I think there's another one with her and a drummer just listening and they're just kind of sitting on the couch listening. And, uh, yeah, so that was here in new Orleans where that was done at Esplanade studios. And so in a big church. And so, um, she had fired her producer and called me and I flew in from LA and finished the record for her. So you must have a lot of outtakes from the, if this thing was auto shooting every, uh, you know, at intervals. Oh, hundreds, <laughs> hundreds. So yeah. And, and it's, sometimes it's hard to pick because you have so many great ones, but you know, you gotta, you gotta pick, you know, you know, for, at least for the book, it was, it was kind of difficult sometimes because you know, I wanted certain things that meant certain things to me, but you know, the book publisher said, you know, we can't have 500 photos in here. We got to, we got to trim it. And so, so yeah, so I, I, you know, they, they had a lot of input on it too. So yeah, there's, looks like a very young Fiona Apple. Yeah, it was, a, it was at, um, um, at the Paramore. I had found this house. It was like a 1920s movie star estate owned by um, Antonio Marino, who was the first Latin lover of silent films. He was like before Rudolph Valentino and he was like a star of this huge, uh, uh, silent film called the Sheik. And so that's kind of like how all those movies started. So he married a, a Daisy Canfield, who was like the oil tycoons of, of Los Angeles. And, uh, her father, uh, built this huge 22 room mansion on the top of Silver Lake, uh, up, right up Mitchell Torina street. And so it, uh, they died mysteriously drove off of Mulholland and died and ended up the house got donated to these nuns. And these nuns ran a, a, a school for where, uh, wayward women. And so there was a lot of like young girls in there. And Tom Petty has claimed that he would go there and climb over the fence to smoke cigarettes with some of the girls there. So, uh, there's all kinds of mysterious stuff. But yeah, so um, that was one of the one of the great locations that I was in for uh, about five years. You got pictures of Willie and Emmy Lou both separately and together. What, yes. Did did Emmy Lou work on Willie's album, or how come they happened to be there together? Um, uh, Emmy Lou was invited to come in and sing on uh, a couple of tracks of Willie's. Willie was okay. only meant to do like three or four songs. And we ended up doing 21. That's all we have time for in this episode. Although my talk with Mark went on for another 20 minutes or so. To access the extended version or the video from this podcast, please consider becoming a plus or premium member. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more. Become a member at freakmusic.club slash join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FNC underscore Dylan. Thanks for listening. 